the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to Episode 17, The Professor. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Now, how many times has such an inglorious ten-word sentence reinvigorated and in some cases created an entire literary genre? Without a doubt, everyone listening to this recording can point to a specific author and come up with ten little words that invited them into some fantastic or entirely otherworldly story. Sometimes the opening lines of a new book are deceptive, using a narrative hook that promises adventure, only for the subsequent chapters to fall flat in the tedium of their own storytelling or in the failure of the inclusion of epic narrative to cover rehashed and tropey storytelling. One man's trash is another man's treasure, as the saying goes, so everyone has their own opinions on this, of course. But sometimes, the storyteller and his work become so synonymous that it is difficult to think of one without the other. I'm, of course, talking about the great J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, other podcasters might be able to give some biographical information about J.R.R. Tolkien, without referring to his written works. I'm not one of those. I will say that the little bits of conjecture that I will offer are just that, conjecture. I'll try to keep it to a minimum as much as I can, but that may not be, be a promise I can keep, or even want to keep. Another thing to know about this episode is that there is a wealth of primary source material, and therefore, where I can, I'm going to let Mr. Tolkien speak for himself. Most of this is in the form of letters that he wrote, that were collected throughout his life, so be ready for a lot of quotes in this one. John Ronald Rule Tolkien was born on the 3rd of January, 1892, to Mabel and Arthur Tolkien, an English couple living in South Africa. His father worked as a manager for the Bank of Africa in the town of Bloemfontein in what was then the Orange Free State. The Tolkien family lived next door to Arthur's bank, but the town itself was apparently not too impressive for Mabel. In a letter to her family, she described her living situation as a owling wilderness and a horrid waste. Bloemfontein was certainly different than what she was used to back in Birmingham, England. No lions would threaten to attack people after dark in England, anyway, and as far as I can tell, jackals don't hang out in the English countryside. Authors seemed to enjoy the South African climate and his work at the bank, making sure things went smoothly for the bank's clients while learning a little Dutch on the side. Life overall, it seemed, was going along reasonably well, distance from their families in England notwithstanding, and, like I said, on January 3rd, Mabel brought John Ronald Rule Tolkien into the world. Young John took his father's middle name of Rule, but he was mostly called Ronald by his parents and those close to him for the rest of his life. Things went along fairly well after John was born, in those early months, toddler John was taken out into the family garden in the mornings and evenings, where he watched his father or the gardeners tend to the various plants and trees. There were a few misadventures with the local wildlife now and then, however. Once, as John was learning to walk, he was bitten by a tarantula. Now, later in his life, John claimed not to remember the spider bite and did not hold any particular dislike towards spiders in general. However, as biographer Humphrey Carpenter points out in his book, J.R.R. Tolkien, A Biography, John wrote about monstrous and venomous spiders more than once in his writings, including two of the most dangerous creatures in his famous Middle-earth legendarium, the unholy giant spider Ungoliant in the Silmarillion and her monstrous offspring Shelob in the Two Towers. 
Soon enough, Mabel was pregnant again, and on February 17, 1894, she gave birth to another son, Hilary Arthur Rule Tolkien. But things had taken a turn for the worse for the Tolkien family. Young John was in poor health, and Mabel was starting to sour on all things Bloemfontein. In April 1895, Mabel took the year-old Hilary Arthur and the three-year-old John to England. At first, this trip to England was supposed to be just for a relatively short visit. John's health slowly improved. Then November came, and with it the news that Arthur, Mabel's husband, had contracted rheumatic fever down in South Africa. In February 1896, just as Mabel and the boys were about to head back to South Africa to take care of him, Arthur Tolkien passed away. According to Humphrey Carpenter, the only clear memory that young John had of his father was of him painting A.R. Tolkien on the lid of a family trunk right before John left for England. Understandably, this was terrible news, and Mabel had some difficult decisions to make with this new hand that she had been dealt. The handful of investments that Arthur had been able to make would not be enough. She had to move out of her parents' house and find some form of cheap housing in Birmingham for herself and her two boys, and get ready to send her sons to school and then actually send them to school. King Edward's school in Birmingham was the obvious choice. John and Hillary's father had attended the school in his youth, and it was regarded as the best grammar school in the city. But the school had an entrance exam to be let in. Fortunately for the two boys, Mabel was able to teach them to draw, paint, play the piano, and begin teaching them Latin, French, and German. You know, the basics. And she was an excellent teacher. John was an excellent student, and thanks to his mom's guidance, was able to read by the time he was four years old and was writing not too long afterwards. His aptitude for languages and the written word was easy to see very early on, as he was eager to learn Latin and English. Not so much French, though. Drawing and painting interested him as well, though music and musical composition not so much. Botany was another favorite, and this led to a lifelong love of trees. Later in his life, Tolkien would equate the mistreatment of trees to be on par with mistreating animals, and he loved stories, particularly one that we've talked about on this podcast before. Humphrey Carpenter tells us that the story of Fafnir and Sigurd captivated the young boy, and tells us that Tolkien said later in life, quote, I desired dragons with a profound desire. Of course, I, in my timid body, did not wish to have them in the neighborhood. But the world that contained even the imagination of Fafnir was richer and more beautiful at whatever cost of peril. End quote. By this point, John was about five years old and was slowly adjusting to life in England. As he grew older, he became more versed in the history of his own family. The name Tolkien isn't an English one. It's German, and started out as more of a nickname. Apparently, the Tolkiens were originally known as the von Hohenzollerns, and had roots in the old Holy Roman Empire. The story that John's Aunt Grace told him was that an ancestor, George von Hohenzollern, was present at the Siege of Vienna in 1529, fighting for King Ferdinand of Austria. This was the battle where Suleiman the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire first tried to capture the Austrian city following the Battle of Mohawks in 1526. Apparently, this Tolkien ancestor, George von Hohenzollern, led a daring but apparently foolhardy raid that captured Suleiman's standard. George was given the nickname of Tolkun, which means foolhardy in German, 
and the name stuck, and he and his family eventually became the Tolkien's. Through some royal connections in France, the family slowly migrated to England, at least according to Aunt Grace. It's easy to see, or want to see, how stories like this could have been incorporated into some of Tolkien's later works. For example, the story I just told could have served as the inspiration for the wonderful story in The Hobbit of Bilbo Baggins' ancestor, Bull Roarer Took, who charged a group of goblins and invented the game of golf by knocking their leader's head down a rabbit hole. In any case, it appears that the notion of having a famous, almost legendary ancestor was an early part of John's life. Another important feature of his early life was the high importance that stories and storytelling held for the Tolkien side of his family. In 1896, the Tolkiens found themselves living in the small town of Serhol in the wide-open English countryside, a setting that would appeal to John for the rest of his life. In a way, he may have gotten this from his mother's side of the family, the Suffields. The Suffields may have represented a kind of permanence to John. In contrast to the adventures of his Tolkien ancestry, the Suffields were thoroughly and completely English, having lived in or around the town of Evesham for generations. It gave him a sense of being home, and for the rest of his life, John would have an affinity for the English countryside. In a letter to his son Michael in 1941, a much older Tolkien writes, quote, Though a Tolkien by name, I am a Suffield by tastes, talents, and upbringing, and any corner of that county, however fair or squalid, is in an indefinable way home to me, as the, no other part of the world is, end quote. Serhole was an idyllic place for two young boys, and it wasn't long before the brothers were out in the meadows exploring. The old mill was a favorite spot, as well as an old sand pit in a grove of trees. Some of the neighbors were kindly, or at least indifferent, to the boys' antics, and others were not. One neighbor, who the Tolkien boys nicknamed the Black Ogre, would yell at them for stealing his mushrooms, and would steal people's shoes if he found them by the riverside, if the boys were on the river without his permission. Another, nicknamed the White Ogre, would get on to them for care carelessly traipsing about his land. In a letter to Mr. Nicholas Thomas, sent in 1968, Tolkien had this to say about his childhood home and the White Ogre. Quote, As for knowing Serhole Mill, it dominated my childhood. I lived in a small cottage almost immediately beside it, and the old miller of my day and his son were characters of wonder and terror for a small child. End quote. He may have seemed as a small child to others, but already by seven years old or so, the young John was beginning to find his creative side. He wrote a story about a dragon, but was flummoxed when his mother pointed out that in English, you shouldn't say green great dragon, you should say great green dragon instead, thanks to the rules of adjectives this Frankenstein's monster of a language that we call English has. One of those things that English speakers know, but don't know that we do. Naturally, this goes out the window if you're talking about capital G, capital D, great dragons, but that's another topic for another time. Back to history. In 1900, things began to change. For a number of personal reasons, Mabel Tolkien and her sister, May, joined the Roman Catholic Church in Birmingham. This didn't go over too well with the Suffield family, who were members of the Unitarian and Anglican churches, or the Tolkien family, who were members of the Baptist Church. In spite of the negativity from both sides of her family, Mabel kept to her new faith and began instructing John and Hillary in it as well. 1900 also saw John head off to school at King Edwards, 
which lay four miles away from the idyllic countryside of Serhol that the Tolkiens had spent four years exploring. This was a sad time for John, as he would look back on his time in the fields and woods with great reverence. A new house and a new school in an area as different as night and day even at the turn of the century. The house that Mabel and the boys would eventually settle in was right next to the main train yard with all the sounds and smells and sights you would think that were there, as far opposite as could be from the previous quiet rural home. There was one silver lining to all of this. There were strange names written on the sides of the rail cars, names written in letters that John knew, but formed words that he could not pronounce. These were Welsh names, and they offered a glimpse of the wealth of languages that this world had and still has to offer. In 1902, the family moved again, which meant a new school called the Grammar School of St. Philip's. Thankfully, the family met a priest by the name of Father Francis Morgan, who would do much to care for them and lend a hand. It quickly became clear that John had far outpaced the students at St. Philip's and was therefore re-enrolled at King Edward's. He was 11 years old at the time and was now studying Greek and, thanks to one of his medievalist teachers, was reading Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in the original Middle English. Now a small side note here. The English that we speak today in 2020 is actually called Modern English. It is preceded by Early Modern English, Middle English, and then Old English, being obviously the oldest. Now, Early Modern English is usually associated with William Shakespeare's writings and can usually be read fairly easily once you figure out the different spellings and old words that you see in there that no one really uses anymore. Special thanks to my high school English teacher, Miss Campbell, who used to always say, Beware the Ides of March. No one uses the word Ides anymore, but you get what I'm saying. You can also see early modern English if you read the King James Version of the Bible that was completed in 1611. Let me give you an example, and this will be fun. Here's Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2, in modern English from the English Standard Version of the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Okay, so far so good. Hopefully if you're listening to me on a podcast that you downloaded yourself, you understood what I just said. Here's the same passage in early modern English from the King James Bible of 1611. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Pretty easy, right? A few words ending in eth, and in other places a lot of these and thous. Now this brings us to Middle English, which is a little different. You have to deal with numerous alternate spellings, lots of pronouns all meaning the same thing, and a great vowel shift from Old English that I don't care to get into. And yes, great vowel shift here is all capitalized because it was a pretty big deal. For the most part, if you can read Modern English, you can probably figure out Middle English. You'll see Middle English in works like Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Here's the same verses from Psalm 23 in my best Middle English. The Lord gowerneth me, and nothing shall defail in me. In the stead of pastor he set me there. He nourished me upon water of feeling. You can get the majority of that, right? And if you know Psalm 23 in modern English, chances are you can fill in the blanks. The spellings here are way different. 
In this version that I found, the word gowerneth is in place of governeth, the shall is missing the second L, and defalen takes the place of fail. Nourished should be, should be nourished, and the last word feeling is spelled F-Y-L-L-Y-N-G instead of F-I-L-L-I-N-G. If you use Middle English spellings on a spelling test, you would fail for sure, but it is still fairly understandable. One of the problems with it is that the spellings are inconsistent, so if you were to Google Psalm 23 in Middle English, you would probably get something different from what I just said. And then we have Old English. And that is a completely different language that barely resembles Middle English or Modern English. How Old English mutated into what we speak today is beyond me and for much smarter people to write books about. You can find Old English in works like Beowulf. Here's Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2 in my best Old English. Wish me luck. Dritten me rait, ne bith me nanes godes wan, and he me geset in swethi good fairland, and fedid me biwatera statum. Yeah, that's Old English. I have no idea whether I said any of those cor words correctly or not, so if you happen to speak Old English, I'm sorry. Okay, back to history. 1904 brought more challenges. Both John and brother Hillary came down with whooping cough and measles. Then Hillary came down with pneumonia. Mabel exhausted herself caring for her boys, and in April was diagnosed with diabetes. Father Francis Morgan helped where he could, but throughout the year, Mabel's condition continually worsened. Unfortunately, Mabel wasn't able to recover and passed away in November of 1904. It is important here to note the impact that Mabel Tolkien had in the development of her sons. She introduced John to languages and fostered his love of drawing and the arts. Later in his life, Tolkien would say of his mother, quote, It is to my mother who taught me, until I obtained a scholarship at the ancient grammar school in Birmingham, that I owe my tastes for philology, especially of the Germanic languages, and for romance, end quote. And later on, he says, quote, For she was a gifted lady, of great beauty and wit, greatly stricken by God with grief and suffering, who died in youth, at thirty-four, of a, of a disease hastened by persecution of her faith, end quote. And finally, he goes on to say, quote, My interest in languages was derived solely from my mother, a Suffield, a family coming from Eversham in Worcestershire. She knew German and gave me my first lessons in it. She was also interested in etymology and aroused my interest in this, and also in alphabets and handwriting. End quote. More than a hundred years after her passing, we are all able to appreciate Mabel Tolkien's ability to pique her son's interest in languages, epic storytelling, and faith like she did. I dare say that modern fantasy literature would be vastly different without her. Following their mother's passing, John and Hillary were entrusted to the care of Father Francis Morgan, who looked after them and provided what the boys needed to survive. Though they lived with their aunt, Hillary and John spent much of their time at the nearby Catholic Church when they weren't at King Edward's school. John continued to thrive in the study of Latin, Greek, and German, 
and soon enough he was introduced to the language of the Anglo-Saxons. It wasn't long before he was reading the story of Beowulf in the original Anglo-Saxon and the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in Middle English. This was followed by learning enough to read the story of Sigurd and Fafnir in Old Norse. He loved languages, words, and the ins and outs of, of languages, and it wasn't long before he was creating languages of his own. Fast forward to 1908. John is 16 years old and has moved yet again. He and his brother were put up in a room with a family of three and another orphan. The other orphan's name was Edith Bratt, a gray-eyed, dark-haired girl whose mother had died five years earlier. Edith played the piano well and quickly became friends with John, and it wasn't long before their friendship blossomed into two years of a happy romance. Unfortunately, Father Francis Morgan, who supported John monetarily so that he could continue his education, was informed and strictly forbade their relationship. Unwilling to part from each other, John and Edith continued to meet secretly, but were spotted once again. John was forbidden from seeing Edith yet again, with Father Francis making it clear that John was not to communicate with her again until he was 21 years old. In a 1941 letter to his son, a much older John wrote to his son Michael, quote, However, trouble arose, and I had to choose between disobeying and grieving, or deceiving, a guardian who had been a father to me, more than most real fathers, but without an obligation, and dropping the love affair until I was 21. I don't regret my decision, though it was very hard on my lover, but that was not my fault. She was perfectly free and under no vow to me, and I should have no complaint, except according to the Unreal Romantic Code, if she got married to someone else. For very nearly three years, I did not see or write to my lover. It was extremely hard, painful, and bitter, especially at first. End quote. It was a difficult time personally for Tolkien to be denied the person that had brought him so much happiness. One facet of his professional and educational life that would help alleviate some of the difficulty and would play a pivotal role in his life was the TCBS. The TCBS was a small group of some of Tolkien's closest friends. The group originated back when Tolkien was at King Edward's school and started as a tea club, hence the TC in the name. The B and S part of the name came from the Barovian Society, a play on the name of the Barrow Stores, which was the place where the young gentlemen would gather when they were not in the school library. The TCBS was a place where Tolkien and his friends could sit and discuss whatever they wanted, passing stories back and forth, learning from, and learning from each other. It became a close-knit group and a place for the friends to offer constructive criticism as the members presented their poems and other academic work to each other for scrutiny. Even as time went on, however, John's fondness for Edith didn't seem to waver. Picking back up from the previous letter to Michael we read a minute ago, Tolkien says, quote, On the night of my 21st birthday, I wrote again to your mother, January 3rd, 1913. On January 8th, I went back to her and became engaged and informed an astonished family. End quote. By 1913, life had changed significantly for John. He had been accepted to Oxford and had thrown himself wholeheartedly into college life. His love of Germanic literature came back in full force, and he participated in undergraduate reading sessions and clubs that were around then. He was also writing more, composing poems, and had gotten his feet wet with the Finnish language. 
It was also around this time that he read a group of Anglo-Saxon poems called The Christ of Kynwolf. Two lines stuck out to him. And let's see if I can do this. Eala erendel engla beortast ofer middengarde monom sended. Of course, that is my best Anglo-Saxon pronunciation of the lines. Hail Arendelle, brightest of angels, above the middle earth sent unto men. Now, as literally everyone knows, the word Arendelle is Anglo-Saxon, meaning a shining light or a ray like a ray of sunshine. It also deeply resonated with John to the point where he would write later, quote, I was struck by the beauty of this word or name, entirely coherent with the normal style of Anglo-Saxon, but euphonic to a peculiar degree in that pleasing but not delectable language, end quote. He continues, quote, Before 1914, I wrote a poem upon a Rendell, who launched his ship like a bright spark from the havens of the sun. I adopted him into my mythology, in which he became a prime figure as a mariner and eventually as a herald star and a sign of hope to men. End quote. We will come back to Arendelle and the Mariner piece later on. As you might have picked up, Tolkien would eventually incorporate elements of that poem into his Lord of the Rings Legendarium as a pretty important character. But according to Humphrey Carpenter's biography, these lines sort of kick-started Tolkien's appreciation for Old Norse and Icelandic myth and legend. This was an important development for Tolkien's imagination. As biographer Humphrey Carpenter states, this poem of Arendelle, the Star Mariner, was the beginning of the Tolkien legendarium of Middle-earth. Life went on for Tolkien and his betrothed Edith through 1913. Tolkien himself was absorbed in all of the aspects of college life, as exciting and dreary as that can be in the same moment. Then, June 28, 1914 rolled around, and the entire world changed with the pull of a trigger. On June 28, a 19-year-old member of the Young Bosnia movement named Gavrilo Princip assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie in Sarajevo, in what is now Bosnia and Herzegovina. Now, depending on who you ask, Princip was either a terrorist or a national hero. In either case, his killing of the Archduke plunged the world into the chaos and carnage of the Great War, a war so terrible that it was supposed to be the war to end war, according to Winston Churchill. On August 4th, Great Britain declared war on Germany, and thousands of young men began enlisting to help the war effort. Tolkien was not one of them. His brother Hillary enlisted as a bugler, but John wanted to stay at Oxford and continue to earn his degree. It wasn't until he found a program that allowed him to enlist, but defer his call-up to active military service, that he signed on with the Officer Training Corps. Around this time, he also began to dive deeper into his writing of both poetry and fantasy stories, as well as languages of his own invention. He would refer to his made-up language as, quote, my nonsense fairy language, end quote, but he was serious enough in this nonsense to use it to write poetry that, when translated into English, actually makes sense. The Middle-earth legendarium found its origins around this time as well, with the words Valinor and Tenequitil starting to appear in his writings. Now for those wondering, in the Silmarillion, Tenequitil would eventually become the tallest mountain in Arda, or Earth, and Valinor would eventually become the home of the Valar. More on that later. 
In the meantime, June 1915 arrived, and with it, first-class honors for Tolkien after passing his final examination in English literature and language. Following that, he took up his military responsibilities with his commission as a second lieutenant in the 13th Battalion of the Lancashire Fusiliers. Life in the military was an ever-changing ride of shifting camps, doing military drills, playing cards, and listening to military lectures. As 1916 rolled around, Tolkien began to specialize in signaling and doing code work, to none of our surprise. He learned Morse code, how to use signal flags, and how to use carrier pigeons. Soon he was appointed to be the battalion signal officer. The war wearily kept dragging on and on, and deployment to the trenches in France was becoming more and more inevitable. Now, by this point in the war, the Central and Allied powers had both become literally entrenched along the Western Front between Germany and France. Both sides were at a stalemate as 18th and 19th century tactics and strategy met with early 20th century killing power. Old weapons like single-shot or muzzle-loaded rifles had been upgraded into repeating bolt-action rifles that allowed soldiers to fire more rounds than they had been able to before and were able to fire them much farther. Add in the fancy new telescopic sights and things got even worse for targets on the wrong side of the crosshairs. After only 11 short years, advances in aviation were in the beginning stages of showing what planes were capable of in wartime scenarios. In the confined trenches, grenades were extremely effective and were improved by leaps and bounds during the war years. New improvements to machine guns saw the creation of zones, referred to as no man's land, as the guns would, could scythe back and forth along advancing troops mowing them down with brutal efficiency. And we all know about the horrors of chemical warfare. Mustard gas and chlorine gas produced incredibly painful blisters and chemical burns or killed by asphyxiation. By far, the greatest killer, however, was the artillery. Improvements to gun and shell designs coupled with greater ranges allowed these weapons to kill massive numbers from farther and farther away. Some of these guns had ranges so far away that the rotation of the earth had to be factored in when aiming them. On February 1, 1916, for example, the German army began the nine-month-long Battle of Verdun with a ten-hour-long artillery bombardment of almost one million shells fired. By the time Tolkien was headed over to France, the war had dragged on and its horrors were well known. Like we said earlier, on the Western Front, the two sides were living in trenches, with neither side being able to gain much traction. The month-long Second Battle of Ypres saw the first use of chlorine gas in battle. Thousands on the Allied side were killed during this battle, and thousands more were injured. Lieutenant Colonel John McRae of the Canadian forces at Ypres described his experience, saying, quote, The general impression in my mind is of a nightmare. We had been in the most bitter of fights. For 17 days and 17 nights, none of us have had our clothes off, nor our boots even, except occasionally. In all that time while I, while I was awake, gunfire and rifle fire never ceased for 60 seconds, and behind it all was the constant background of the sights of the dead, the wounded, the maimed, and the terrible anxiety lest the line should give way." End quote. The constancy of being surrounded by the dead and dying would take a toll on anyone. After seeing one of his close friends fall in battle, McRae wrote, In Flanders' fields the poppies blow, 
beneath the crosses row on row, that mark our place and in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw, the torch be yours to hold it high, if you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. So it comes as little surprise to hear that Tolkien and Edith decided to get married before he left for the continent. On March 22, 1916, John and Edith were married by Father Francis Morgan, John's benefactor and the man who had forbidden their relationship all those years ago. Fortunately, all that seemed to be water under the bridge now since John was 24 years old and Edith was 27. Tolkien wrote of it all later in 1941 to his son Michael, saying, quote, Bolted into the army, July 1915. I found the situation intolerable and married on March 22, 1916. May found me crossing the channel. I still have the verse I wrote on the occasion for the carnage of the psalm. End quote. Tolkien arrived on French soil at the town of Calais on June 6th and then headed to base camp at Etaple, where he was transferred to the 11th Battalion. He spent three frustratingly boring weeks at Etaple, boring because of the inactivity and frustrating because of the lack of information and the overall attitude of the seasoned soldiers toward the new recruits. But after that third week, Tolkien's company was sent by train to Amiens on the front lines. They could hear the guns firing before they even reached their destination. From Amiens, the 11th marched 10 miles to the little village of Rubimpre, where they would camp in the broken roofs and falling rain, surrounded by the scarlet poppies, not unlike the ones that inspired Lieutenant Colonel John McRae. On June 30th, the 11th moved nearer to the front line at a place called Bouzencourt. On July 1st, the Battle of the Somme began. Tolkien biographer Humphrey Carpenter describes the opening day by saying, quote, At 7.30 a.m. on Saturday, the 1st of July, the troops in the British front line went over the top. Rob Gilson of the TCBS, serving in the Suffolk Regiment, was among them. They scrambled up ladders from the trenches and into the open, forming up straight lines as they had been instructed, and beginning their slow tramp forward. Slow because each man was carrying at least 65 pounds of equipment. They had been told that the German defenses were already virtually destroyed and that barbed wire cut by the Allied barrage. But they could see that the wire was not cut, and as they approached it, the German machine guns opened fire on them. End quote. Now, to our modern ears, this seems suicidal, and like something you would see in a Colonial Times movie, with redcoats lining up in nice orderly lines to shoot at each other. This is what happens when old and outdated tactics meets new and improved weapons technology. With perfect targets right in front of them, the German machine guns mowed the advancing British troops down like grass. On July 14th, Tolkien and the B Company were sent into the action. B Company participated in an unsuccessful attack on the hamlet of German-held Avalers, where the barbed wire had once again not been cut and where once again the machine gun fire tore through the ranks of, his com of the company. 
Tolkien survived without injury and was finally able to sleep after 48 grueling hours of fighting. After another day on the front lines, what was left of B Company was relieved and sent to the back to recover. Bad news awaited him back at base camp. As we've already seen, Rob Gilson, one of the members of the TCBS friend group, had gone over the top of the trench into no man's land trying to take a German position. Tolkien was informed by a letter that his friend Gilson did not survive the first day of the Battle of the Somme. A short rest later, and Tolkien was back in the trenches. His company participated in more attacks on the German lines that were mostly ineffective. In August 1916, during a rest period, Tolkien was able to see one of his other TCBS friends named G.B. Smith. Smith had been, to, been the one to let Tolkien know of the passing of their mutual friend Gilson a month earlier. They were able to talk a little bit over a meal, but it wasn't long before Tolkien was back in action. The Battle of the Somme dragged on. Officially, it started back on July 1st, 1916, but by November of that year, it was still going on. British forces were taking losses each day, and those losses were only continuing to grow. Tolkien, through some luck, providence, or chance, if chance you call it, remained uninjured. That's not to say he was immune to everything, however. In late October 1916, Tolkien contracted what was called trench fever that was carried by the lice that infested the trenches. Trench fever is also known as shinbone fever, and was pretty common in the trenches during the war. High fever accompanied various pains, including pain in the legs and pain when you moved your eyeballs. According to the University of Kansas Medical Center website, the disease was rarely fatal, but a soldier who contracted the disease was away from the front for an average of about three months. Tolkien was removed from the battle lines and on November 8th was sent back to England to recover in, ho in a hospital in Birmingham. Edith rejoined him there, and by the second half of December, John was well enough to spend Christmas with her. The war still raged on continental Europe, and would until 1918. But for now, for Tolkien, it was over. Four months of brutal combat with the ever-present specter of death hanging out in the trenches was at an end. Though he escaped the carnage mostly unharmed, Tolkien was not without his wounds. He had lost close friends in his short time in France, such as G Rob Gilson and G.B. Smith from the TCBS group. No doubt the loss of so many old and close friends weighed heavily on his mind. After a month of recovery in Birmingham, Tolkien was declared well enough to return to his battalion. Except he got sick again and had to spend a few more weeks in recovery before getting sick yet again and having to go in for another round of recovery. In April 1917, he was well enough to sit for further training at the Army Signaling School, but he unfortunately failed the final test in July. By August, Tolkien was sick yet again, and once again back in recovery. As frustrating as 1917 was turning out to be, two big things happened that would change John and Edith's life. First and most importantly, in November 1917, Edith gave birth to the couple's first child, John Francis Rule Tolkien. Second, Tolkien began the writing of his legendarium. While all of this was happening, Tolkien was reinstated to the military and was being bounced around to different posts around Great Britain, though he did serve another stint in the hospital with yet another illness. Edith wasn't a big fan of the moving and the constant illness, though, 
and Humphrey Carpenter quotes her in his book as saying, quote, I should think you ought never to feel tired again, Edith wrote, for the amount of bed you have had since you came back from France nearly two years ago is enormous, end quote. Carpenter doesn't say whether or not this was meant as a joke on Edith's part, probably wisely avoiding any inquiry into the mind of a new mother whose husband is constantly in bed with sickness. By the time Tolkien recovered from this latest illness, it was October 1918. The Armistice, on November 11, 1918, ended the First World War, and in July of 1919, Tolkien was officially demobilized. He and his young family moved to Oxford. His time serving his country militarily was at an end. But just because he was done with the military does not mean he was done serving his country. During his time in recovery, Tolkien began to write and give life to an idea that he had been cooking up in his mind for a long time. He was going to create a story. But not just any old story. Here's his idea in his own words in an undated letter to Milton Waldman. Quote, I was from early days grieved by the poverty of my own beloved country. It had no stories of its own, bound up with its tongue and soil, not of the quality that I sought, and found as an ingredient in legends of other lands. There was Greek and Celtic and Romance, Germanic, Scandinavian, and Finnish, which greatly affected me, but nothing in English save impoverished chapbook stuff. Of course, there was and is all the Arthurian world, but powerful as it is, it is imperfectly naturalized, associated with the soil of Britain, but not with English, and does not replace what I felt to be missing. End quote. He goes on to say in the same letter, quote, But once upon a time, my crest has long since fallen, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story, the larger founded on the lesser in contact with the earth, the lesser drawing splendor from the vast backcloths, which I could dedicate simply to England, to my country. End quote. In other words, Tolkien wanted to create a mythology for England, one that was purely English in body and soul. As he mentions, the stories and legends of King Arthur and his knights in the round table and all that, they were great, but don't really count as they weren't really English in origin. It's more of a French-Welsh creation. Beowulf, which we talked about in previous episodes, is an Anglo-Saxon creation from Scandinavia. Tolkien wanted to correct that apparent oversight of history and myth. While in recovery, he grabbed a notebook and got to work. The title was The Book of Lost Tales. The stories that would eventually come to be featured in The Book of Lost Tales would eventually become known as the Silmarillion, which we will get to later. But before we dive too deeply into the stories, we have to take a step back a little and understand a few things about Tolkien. First and most importantly, Tolkien was a Christian. A reading of his many letters gives testament to this, and we will talk more about it later. Second, Tolkien was a perfectionist, constantly rewriting and rewriting his stories until he was absolutely happy with what was on the page. C.S. Lewis would comment, quote, He, meaning Tolkien, has only two reactions to criticism. Either he begins the whole work over again from the beginning, or else takes no notice at all. End quote. Third, when I say he loved languages, I mean he really loved languages. 
while working at Oxford and ostensibly to both impress and frustrate anyone doing research on him, Tolkien began keeping a journal. No problem, right? Lots of people keep journals. Most people also keep their journals in languages that other people can understand. But Tolkien was not one of those people. Instead of writing in his native English, or Anglo-Saxon, or Icelandic even, he wrote it in his own made-up language called the Alphabet of Rumil. And this alphabet wasn't just some made-up nonsense thing. You can translate it back into regular English and understand it. So yeah, Tolkien loved his languages. From 1919 to 1920, he worked on the New English Dictionary, creating entries for the letter W, including words like warm and wasp and water and winter. Here, his affinity for language was on full display, and he did a remarkable job. In the fall of 1920, Tolkien got the job of reader in English language at the University of Leeds where he helped develop the curriculum and syllabus for their up-and-coming Anglo-Saxon and Middle English courses. And in October, he and Edith welcomed their second son, Michael Hillary Rule, into the world. Not long after, Tolkien published a Middle English glossary and a new edition of the Middle English poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. These and other publications were soon followed by the creation of the school's new Viking club. The meetings of the club made him pretty popular as a teacher, as they usually consisted of reading sagas, singing rude songs, and drinking beer. Throughout all this, Tolkien kept working on his stories in the Book of Lost Tales. He had almost finished it in 1923, but decided to rewrite it. The next year, at age 32, Tolkien not only became the new professor of English at Leeds, but also welcomed his third son, Christopher Rule, into the world. Then in 1925, Tolkien was appointed to the Professorship of Anglo-Saxon at the University of Oxford, where he would teach for the next 20 years. Four years later, in 1929, the Tolkiens welcomed their first daughter, Priscilla Mary Rule, into the world. Now, at this point, it would be easy to just say that life went on and Tolkien led the life of an academic, as exciting and dreary as that can be at the same time. Biography Humphrey Carpenter says, quote, And after this, you might say, nothing else really happened. Tolkien came back to Oxford, was Rolison and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon for 20 years, and was then elected Merton Professor of English Language and Literature, went to live in a conventional Oxford suburb where he spent the first part of his retirement, moved to a nondescript seaside resort, came back to Oxford after his wife died, and himself died a peaceful death at the age of 81. It was the ordinary, unremarkable life led by countless other scholars, like a life of academic brilliance, certainly, but only in a very narrow professional field that is really of little interest to laymen. And that would be that, apart from the strange fact that during these years when, quote, nothing happened, quote, he wrote two books which have become world bestsellers, books that have captured the imagination and influenced the thinking of several million readers. It is a strange paradox the fact that The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are the work of an obscure Oxford professor whose specialization was the West Midland dialect of Middle English and who lived in an ordinary suburban life bringing up his children and tending his garden. End quote. Fortunately for readers and lovers of fantasy literature, this is not where the story ends. Like biographer Carpenter says, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are soon to come and we will get into them next episode in The Professor, Part 2.
That's all for this episode of the History on the Side podcast. As always, you can get in touch with me by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com, through the Facebook or Instagram pages, or by visiting historyontheside.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.